right. Great. It was awesome being Ryan's boss. It was so great telling him what to do. And Now, Ryan's about the easiest guy in the world you could ever want to lead. Uh, so I'm just going to brag on him for a second while, while I have the mic. Um, you guys have an exceptional leader here uh, at St. Paul's. Uh, just a great guy, man of character, smart, so smart, and uh, just willing to do uh, whatever needed to get done. Uh, a number of years ago, we were doing missions trips to Milan, Italy, and uh, I, Ryan wasn't sure that he really wanted to lead a team, but he ended up leading two of them in back-to-back years, um, partly through my nudging, but partly because Ryan just has a sense of, you know, if this is what God is, is calling us to do, um, I'm willing to do it. So you guys are very, very fortunate to have Ryan as your, as your, uh, as your title lead pastor. What's your official title? boss here at St. Paul's, I don't know. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's great, and it's been awesome to stay in touch. He and I have some really interesting, and always have really interesting, theological, social conversations. Uh, so if you ever want to pick his brain about anything or chew, chew on stuff with him, that would be, that'd be great. I uh, just want to give you uh, just two seconds of a, of a glimpse into our year of ministry. As you, as you all know, last year, a year ago, 2020, 21, uh, was just crazy for everybody, uh, St. Paul's included. We were all dealing with all the same things. Uh, at UConn, we were basically forbidden to meet individually or meet in person with students. Kind of hard to do student ministry when you're not allowed to see the people that you're doing ministry with. So we spent a lot of time uh, on Zoom. I've heard Zoom stock went through the roof and it started to crash, but... <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, we spent a lot of time on the computer uh, working with students remotely. Grateful for the technology, but that's not really how you want to be doing student ministry. This year, we were allowed to be back in person, and it was amazing. Just simple things like being able to give somebody a hug, you know, just changed everything. And it was just a great reminder uh, to Diane and me about um, just the value of being with, with other humans. You know, and the value of like physical touch and, and what it meant to give somebody a hug. So uh, we spent a lot of time in person with students. And it, from like January, well, end of December through really f- late February, uh, we were embroiled in some family drama involving very, very sick parents. We, we thought we were going to lose one of them. Uh, kind of miraculously, uh, he survived and uh, is doing, doing pretty well now. But... For, I don't know, about a two-month period, we spent a lot of time with each of our sets of parents taking care of them. And we actually did relatively little ministry in person. And things just blew up in our ministry on campus in a great way. So I think the lesson there is maybe we can just retire and maybe God will do all these great things. But um, it's been amazing. I think, I think what we discovered is that students also felt the need to be together. And this COVID reality, I think, brought into some focus for students the things that are really important. And our ministry grew in ways that it literally has never grown before. And we've been reaching out to more teams. Students have taken initiative. It's been, I would say, maybe the best year of ministry we've ever had at UConn. We've been here for 26 years. So it was, it's been a blast. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. So, yeah, we're pretty encouraged. <clears throat> um, all right, so we're in this Ephesians uh, 3 section. So let me ask you this. Show of hands, who here loves a good mystery? 
Good mystery. All right, handful of you. All right, old school. We go old school in Agatha Christie novel, or, or uh, for me, growing up on episodes of Scooby Doo. Right? Remember Scooby Doo? I'd have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those meddling kids. That's the way they always ended. Um, my wife likes the TV show House. Uh, if you've ever seen House, it's medical mysteries. Right? This brilliant genius, crazy guy, uh, who solves these unbelievable medical. Mysteries. Uh, a mystery is, by definition, uh, something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. So in Christianity, a mystery is a truth that is unknowable except through divine revelation. Or it's something about God that humans can't comprehend. Maybe it appears to be a, a logical contradiction uh, that we just can't get our minds around. The, the Greek word here is mysterion. That's the Greek word for mystery, and it literally means a hidden or secret thing, not obvious to understanding, or hidden purpose or counsel. Uh, Winston Churchill once said that Russia is a riddle wrapped inside a mystery inside an enigma. And wiser people than me have said women are a mystery. I thought that would get a bigger laugh than that. I was a little surprised. <laughs> a little surprised. I just, you know, I report, you decide, don't shoot the messenger. Um, Paul and the Christian, uh, the Bible and the Christian faith are full of mysteries. Paul himself talks later in Ephesians, which I'm sure you guys will get to, about the husband-wife relationship um, and how it reflects the relationship between Christ and his church as being a mystery. That's in Ephesians 5. We know that the Trinity is a mystery. Can anyone here really explain the Trinity? Really? Without falling into some form of heresy? Good luck with that, right? Um, one God, one God existing simultaneously in three distinct persons. How in the world is that supposed to, to work itself out? It took the church several hundred years of batting this stuff around, trying to figure it out before they can come up with any sort of clarity on it. It's a, it's a, it's a biblical truth, right? But it's a mystery. And I think some people now would say, oh yeah, I can see the Trinity in the Bible. I'm like, really? Like without the work done by the early church, could you really come up with the Trinity by yourself? I don't know, I think it would take a supernatural revelation of God for you to be able to, to see that. So this morning we're going to look at one of the mysteries in the Bible that Paul talks about. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3, maybe it'll be up on the screen, hopefully. Ephesians 3, 1 through 7. I'm reading from the ESV. <clears throat> it says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So Paul starts off here by saying, for this reason. And obviously, uh, when you say for, it refers to something prior. So his words, starting chapter 3, refer to his words that Ryan was sharing last week in chapter 2. We have to remember that we break things up into chapters and verse, but chapters and verse were not part of the original text. When we say that the Bible is inspired... The chapters and verses aren't inspired. Those are just reference points. So 
the beginning of chapter 3 just continues the thought of, of chapter 2. Okay, in fact, little known fact, that the first New Testament chapters and verses were first, uh, first appear in Bibles in the uh, Geneva Bible uh, in the 1500s. So they went almost 1500 years with these letters circulating uh, and then canonized in the New Testament without chapter and verse. So I, don't, I still don't understand in some of the places where they put chapters and verses, why they did where they did. I'm like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So uh, anyway, he's referring to what he was talking about in chapter 2. He's continuing that train of thought. And recall that Paul had just been talking about how Christ had broken down the wall dividing Jews and Gentiles, taking two people that historically had been at odds with one another, in enmity with one another, as the New Testament would say, and made them one in Christ. This great unity that Paul talks about. Gentiles had become fellow citizens of heaven with the Jews, fellow members of the household of God. Okay? So that's what he'd been talking about. In verse 6, he talks about this mystery, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it is for that reason that the Gentiles had been included in the household of God that Paul says he was made a minister of the gospel. He says, for this reason, and he has this big parenthetical statement, and then he talks about that uh, being the reason. So I want you to follow the structure. If you look at the passage, it says, um, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, there you go. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And you see this dash there. Now Paul goes into one of his famous, like, sidebars, a little tangent, right? It's like a parenthetical statement. And he talks about all these things, and then he recaptures his train of thought. When he's, so basically, if you skip that middle section, it's like, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, basically was made a minister to the Gentiles. That's the long story short. Okay? So we're going to look at this text in two parts. First, we're going to look at this big parenthetical statement, this idea of this mystery. And then second, we're going to talk about how that impacts his calling uh, as an apostle. So the first, first thing we talk about is this parenthetical statement, the mystery. You know, God's plan often seems to run counter to what we might expect. I'll give you a few examples. Who would have thought that the way to be first was to be what? Last, right? Who would have thought that the way to have life is to what? Die or lose it, right? Who would have thought that the path to success is by putting others first. Who would have thought that the way to redeem people would have included God becoming a man, being born in a manger, and then dying a brutal death on a cross. God, God's way of doing things seems to run counter to our, uh, our normal, natural understanding. And Paul here is talking about the mystery that God revealed to him, the mystery that is the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom and God's purposes and God's people. Quick show of hands. How many of you, to your knowledge, uh, have Jewish, are of Jewish descent? Anyone? He says, teeny weeny tiny bit. Okay. Now, we might all have some that we're unaware of. But, but to our knowledge, like, this is a 99.998% Gentile audience. Right? So this is us that he's talking about. Right? What's interesting is that to these Jewish apostles, remember the first apostles of Jesus were Jewish, uh, this was a pretty big mystery. And it took them 
by surprise. But what's interesting is that if you stop and think about it, it should not have taken them by surprise. I want to give you a few examples. Uh, we don't have slides for these, but in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, going way back to Genesis, God said to Abram, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, this is the key part, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is is making this covenant with Abram. He wants to set apart a people for himself, not so that they can just be this exclusive club, but he sets them apart so that they would be a conduit of his grace and his blessing to the rest of the world. It establishes the very reason for which God is making a people unto himself. In Isaiah 56, now we're getting into the Jewish prophets, 6 through 8, says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declared, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So Isaiah himself talks about how inclusion in God's people is extended beyond the Jewish people. It's extended to all peoples. Another prophet, Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14 said this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Who's the Son of Man? Right, Jesus, right. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All peoples, all nations, all languages coming to serve. In Psalm 22, 27 through 28, We see this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the nations, all the families of the nations, all over the earth. So we see in Jewish history, Jewish poetry, Jewish prophecy, all of this talk that clearly explains how the entire world, including the Gentiles, will worship God and be included in his blessing. So this shouldn't have been a mystery to Paul and the apostles of his day. Right? It's pretty pretty clearly there. Right? In fact, one quick story. Diane was uh, sharing the story. I'd heard the story before, but she reminded me of it yesterday. Um, Earlier this year, she was meeting with one of her her athletes, uh, a new new believer, uh, with virtually no, no Bible background at all. One day they were talking and the student mentioned how she was reading through the book of Ruth. Dine's like, Ruth? Like, <laughs> how would you end up reading the book of Ruth of all places? And turns out this student was taking a class at UConn. Uh, it was an Old Testament class? Is that what it was? I think it was the Bible is literature class. So she's reading through the book of Ruth. Um, and uh, as she was reading, she, she was realizing that the point of Ruth this is a new believer, is that the point of Ruth is that God's blessing is also for the Gentiles. Ruth was not Jewish. 
Yet God fully embraced her in her, in her faith, right? Uh, the mystery was made clear to her, the student, who didn't have much Bible background at all, that God's blessing includes um, uh, more than just Israel. And she got this from reading the book of Ruth. So Old Testament through and through, uh, there's just picture after picture after picture of, of the Jewish nation, yes, but also Gentiles, nations all over the world coming into the family of God. In the New Testament, this is also not a mystery, right? Jesus made it clear in the Great Commission passages in Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Acts 1 that the gospel was to go to the entire world. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. Mark 16 says, go into all creation, right? Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the what? The ends of the earth, right? It, was this really a mystery? I mean, it kind of was, but it shouldn't have been, right? All throughout the Jewish scriptures, we see this theme and Jesus hammered on it time and time again. The gospel quite clearly was meant for all people, not just the Jews, but for generations, for literally generations, hundreds of years, the Jewish people had somehow drifted uh, internally, viewing themselves more and more as like a, a socio-political entity that had favor with God, uh, as opposed to a people that was chosen to bring the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. And it's worth taking a moment in light of some words that Ryan shared last week to consider ourselves, whether we think of ourselves as Americans who happen to be Christians or as Christians who happen to be Americans, right? Those are different things. We tend to see ourselves first through the lens of our socio-political reality and then second through the lens of our faith, right? The Bible makes it clear that our primary identity is as a follower of Jesus. That's our number one identity, right? That everything else, our gender, our age, our station in life, our ethnicity, our economic status, our nationality, all that, while it matters and is real, and it's a part of who we are, it's lower on the hierarchy compared to our primary identity as Christians. We are Christians first. We are Americans, or women, or white, or insert any other descriptor um, second. So why did Israel fall into this? Well, if you think about their history, even fairly modern history, it's understandable, right? For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, Israel has been at war with its, with its neighboring countries. Ever since Israel made it to the promised land, there has been war between its neighbors and Israel. There have been nations, there are nations to this day who as, as part of their constitution, part of their express purpose is to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. That's a reality. That was a reality thousands of years ago and it's still a reality today. It's not happening today, thankfully, but it's still a reality today that, that Israel is constantly beset by enemies on all sides. So it, it kind of makes sense that they would hunker down, circle the wagons, whatever imagery you want to use, and, and just see themselves as this um, kind of this isolated group that has God's favor and we're just going to keep it to ourselves. Right? You can kind of see why that's happened over time. But 
in the process, defending themselves in the process, they've forgotten why, why did God make them a nation in the first place? He made them a nation in the first place so that his blessing would go through them to the world. Interestingly enough, this mystery that Paul talks about here, that God and the gospel was for the Gentiles too, and that Israel was chosen to be God's people for the purpose of reaching the world, it was a mystery to Paul also. Before he became a believer, Paul persecuted the church. He wasn't on board with the idea of Israel uh, being about bringing hope to the nations. He was, as he pointed out in Philippians, a Pharisee of Pharisees, committed to Israel, committed to the purity of Israel, uh, not wanting Israel to be stained in any way by outside influences. So Paul didn't see this either. In fact, he fought against it. What about the other apostles? Right? Recall that Peter had to be convinced that the gospel was for the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, there's a really important event in church history. Uh, Paul is given this, uh, Peter is given this vision uh, by God of this great, it's like a dream, a vision, a great sheet. And in it, God shows him that, that certain animals are, uh, well, all animals are clean. Paul thinks, I'm not going to go rise and, and kill and eat those animals because they're unclean. And God says, no, they're all clean. <coughs> they're all clean. And that was God's way of saying, hey, there's a guy I want you to meet. His name is Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Gentile. And um, Paul was supposed to go bring the gospel to Cornelius. So Paul does that. I keep saying Paul. Peter. Peter does that. Um, and here's, the, here's kind of the summary that Peter gives the group in Acts 11 after he's met with them and he saw God do amazing things. Acts 11, verses 11 through 17. At that, this is Peter speaking. He said, At that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, uh, sent to me from Caesarea, and the, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction between Jew and Gentile. These six brothers also accompanied me as we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? I love that. I love that. And the, the response was they glorified God and said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is one of the seminal moments in church history where it becomes clear to the apostles that the gospel really is for the Gentiles too. But think about the convincing it took for Peter to get on board. God had to do a supernatural revelation for Peter. Like he, he, he should have gotten this from Jesus' teachings all throughout his ministry, but it didn't dawn on him, right? And then God had to do something supernatural in his life for him to go, oh, wait a second. Like, this is not just for us Jews. This is for the Gentiles, too. Later in Acts 15, as they're trying to figure out how this worked, there became a debate over whether Gentiles first had to become Jewish. So it's like, okay, maybe, maybe the gospel is for the Gentiles, but they still have to become Jewish first, right? And that became the debate. And um, they thought, you know, do, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? in order to be saved. 
And there was a lot of debate about this. Peter ends up standing up in front of the council in Acts 15. He says this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to his previous experience we just talked about. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter, through this experience, stands up in front of this council and says, you know what? They don't need to be Jewish first. Gentiles can become members of the family of God just as much as us and they don't need to become us as Jews first. This is a big deal, a big deal for the church. Uh, he didn't always think this way. In Galatians 2, Paul talked about how he and Peter had some go-rounds about this, uh, how they, had to, they argued this point for a while, and how, and how Paul was like, Peter, I think you're falling into some hypocrisy here because you're, you're, you're saying one thing, but you're acting like they actually do need to become Jewish first. And uh, they ended up working that stuff out. Um, so what, what should have been clear to the Jewish apostles turned out to be not so clear. And God had to reveal this to them in a number of different ways. But they finally got it, and the mission went to the Gentiles. Peter shared with Cornelius and his household. We know that Peter ended up doing ministry in Rome, which is where he was, he was killed for his faith. Paul became the primary uh, apostle to the Gentiles, as we see uh, here. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. Right? He was a religious leader steeped in the ways of Judaism. He was trained under a guy named, Gam I never know how to say his name. Ryan, help me. Is it Gamaliel or Gamaliel? Gamaliel. Gamaliel? That's what you would say? Then I'm, whatever he says is what I'm going with. Gamaliel, who was the grandson of the famous rabbi Hillel. Now, where have you heard that name Hillel before? Anyone? At UConn, yes, okay. At UConn, what's at UConn? Yeah, yeah. On, on a lot of campuses, the, the Jewish center is called Hillel. Well, it's named after the great rabbi Hillel. Um, the Pharisees, now, we always think about them as a, as a group of people that Jesus opposed, but, but they were a sect that stood in, in sharp contrast to the influence of the Greeks who had conquered Israel back in the days of Alexander the Great. The term Pharisee means separated or isolated because they wanted Israel to be separated, isolated, distinct from Hellenistic culture and influence. In fact, the the Pharisaic teachings on the law were so stringent in, in large part because they wanted no outside influence from pagan cultures at all infecting the Jewish people. That was the way they thought of it. So one commentator noted that in their quest to keep Israel from violating God's law, they ended up being a law unto themselves, which is kind of interesting. They so wanted to protect Israel from any sort of pagan, Greek, Gentile influence that they ended up creating this whole set of laws and they kind of they kind of became the worst thing that they didn't intend to be in the first place. So Paul was against anything. Paul being a part of this group was against anything that could infect Israel. Uh, so when the Christian movement began, right, it wasn't originally seen as a Christian thing, right? It was seen as a sect of the Jews. And uh, he began persecuting the church, right? He began going after them, going after them, right? God then steps into Paul's life and he reaches in and he meets him on the road to Damascus, and he changes his life. Right? Paul becomes a believer, 
and Paul's life is never the same. And throughout all the Roman Empire, Paul ended up traveling, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Yes, he, he preached it to, to Jews in the synagogues in the cities like Corinth and Thessalonica and places like that. But then he would always share the gospel with the Gentiles as well. And he declared himself in various places, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul described his mission like this. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, he never denied his Jewishness, and he never denied his Roman citizenship. In fact, at various times he asserted both of those things. But he subordinated all of that, all of that, under the lordship and mission of Christ. Right? His national identity, his ethnic identity, all took second place for him. First place was, I'm a follower of Christ, and I'm going to do what I'm called to do as a follower of Christ, period. Even if that runs counter to my heritage even if it runs counter to my socio-political reality, okay? So that was, his, that was his mission. He valued his mission so much that he spent most of his apostolic life outside of Israel, preaching to Gentile cities. So the point here I want to make with Paul is that, that we don't need to stop being American to be Christian, or if you're from a different nationality here, you don't need to stop being whatever else is part of your identity, but... Christian needs to come first, right? If you're a Christian, Christian is the first thing in your identity, right? Everything else comes second. For these guys, that was a big deal because it meant going against a lot of what their heritage had taught them. So I think we just read often the pages of Scripture and go, oh, yeah, they just took the gospel to the Gentiles, and we think it was no big deal. It was a huge deal. It was a huge deal for them. So... I want to wrap up by asking you a few questions and talking about a couple things here. How does this pertain to us today? This is all fun, interesting, maybe it's interesting, it is to me, uh, stuff about Paul and, and the history of the church, right? Does it apply to us in any way? First, I just want to talk to you about the idea of mystery for a second. Um, have you ever gone through an experience where you've wondered why in the world is this happening to me? Why, in the, why is God allowing this to happen to me? or it happened to someone I love, right? I, I, I think it's hard to live any length of time and not wonder that, that question. I bet even Carson has asked that question at times in his own way. Like, why is this happening to me, right? Um, and you can't figure out what the purpose is. You do not know. And I think a lot of times we say things like, you know what, when I get to heaven... First thing that's going to happen is I'm going to walk right up to Jesus and go, yo, what was the deal with this? I'm not so sure that's, the, that's what's going to happen. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Uh, it's not clear to me, in Scripture anyway, that we will either want to, know the dip, want to know the reason for it, because we'll be in heaven. Do we really need to know at that point? I don't know. Maybe we will, but maybe we won't. Or secondly, that even if we do, even if we ask God that question, I don't know that God is going to answer it. Right? There are going to be probably many, many things that will just forever remain a mystery. Right? Now, maybe we'll know them in heaven, but that doesn't really help you now, does it? Like, if you're going through something now, 
You want to know why it's happening now. And you might not get an answer. The question is, can you live with that? Can you trust God in the midst of what, whatever mystery you're going through? Can you trust God that he's a good God? And he cares for you? And that he knows what he's doing? Right? I bet these guys, at first, when the, when the gospel started going to the Gentiles, they're probably like, whoa, like, hang on a second. What's going on? But they're like, okay. Like Peter's response, like, who was I to stand in his way? Like, if this is what God's going to do, okay. Right? Can we trust God without even knowing why something is happening in our lives? That's a good question for us. Second, how does this particular mystery of Gentiles being included in God's promises intersect with your life? Well, as we saw earlier, we're all Gentiles, right? This is us that he's talking about. We are all beneficiaries of this mystery that God has now revealed, right? Thank God that the gospel went to the Gentiles, or we would not be here right now, right? Thank God for that. The question is, who might you be called to as a missionary to the Gentiles around you? Now, I'm not, if you, don't misunderstand. If you have a, a Jewish coworker, that doesn't mean I'm saying don't, don't be a missionary to them too. But I'm saying we live in a primarily Gentile world here, right? The, the first Americans, the Native Americans, were not Jewish, right? They were Gentile too. And they would have been considered the ends of the earth, right? In fact, this is a land that the first apostles had no idea even existed, right? But really the issue is uh, not about nationalities or, or ethnicities or whatever. It's really more about just who is, the, who is God put in your life? You know, whether it be at work or in your community or your friends or your family, right? God has placed you in a particular spot to intersect with the lives of those people that you're around constantly, right? I'm a, Diana had this conversation. I'm about to have a golf event up in Maine with uh, a bunch of buddies, and then there's some, some new guys joining the event. And um, Diane's like, do you ever share the gospel in the context of that? And it was, thanks, honey, a little convicting. Um, but I said, no, I usually share about what, kind of what I do, and I kind of leave it at that. She goes, well, what if you, what if you saw this as an opportunity to, to share the gospel somehow with them? And she's 100% right. Like, God will put me spending all day with these seven other guys, playing golf, right, which is fun for me, but it's like, I'm going to be spending so much time with them, going up and down a golf course, tons of opportunities for conversation, right, why wouldn't I take advantage of, of the fact that God has placed me right there with them, right, maybe you're not going to play golf, but you have people in your life, I guarantee it, that don't know Jesus, and yet the gospel is for them too, who better, who better to communicate that to them than you? Right? You can be a missionary to the Gentiles, so to speak, as well. Well, what was once a mystery has now been revealed. This is not a secret anymore. Right? We know what God's purposes are in terms of the gospel. We know how we fit into that. We know that God's put us in the lives of people. And I just want to encourage you to take advantage of every moment that you have. It doesn't mean every second needs to be a Jesus conversation. But you can be a gospel presence in the lives of those around you. And I encourage you to not only... Be that as a community, but to be that individually in your lives as well. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for this incredible truth. Thanks that this mystery has been revealed. 
and that we get to participate in it. Thanks that we are also members of your family. Thanks that it's not just limited to those of Jewish blood. Um, and I pray that you give us opportunities. I pray that you give us uh, relationships and conversations that lead people to you, that we can introduce people to you, Lord, and we pray that you would do the things that only you can do. Thanks, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.